And this is part five. Uh, you can catch all of it online on YouTube or uh, Facebook or our website. We have it all there. and We've got audio on several platforms as well. And this is part five talking about the prophet Hosea. Hosea. When's the last time you read in the book of Hosea? Raise your hand. What's a Hosea, you say? You know, where, where is Hosea anyway? I mean, Hosea in the... Oh, I need my Bible. Can you pass that to me, Sean? Thank you. If you uh, have a paper Bible, he's even going to be hard to find in a paper Bible. Um, so you want to kind of turn toward the center and you start getting into the big guys, you know, Ezekiel and all of that. And he's kind of tucked in right after there, uh, after Daniel. All right. And if you have an electronic Bible, you might want to pull up Hosea there. Uh, it's 13 chapters long, so I hope you're ready for a long service today, and maybe we'll continue it over at the park. That's a joke, okay. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll just focus on really things in the first three chapters, because that's where the, the heart of the story is. And the idea of this series is that the messages of these prophets, and we're looking at prophets largely from the Old Testament, the they spoke, yes, to their people in their time, in their place, in their culture. But what they have to say is relevant through time. It's relevant even up to our time. And some of the things that they say uh, are just uh, strikingly applicable to us. Even some of the language that they use is applicable to us. And we say some of the same things, you know, that the people said back then. We say some of the same things. We feel some of the same ways. And what these prophets did, just to review, is that they spoke to the people uh, on behalf of God. They would proclaim what God had to say, but they would also at times say what God will do. And they would make these predictions uh, of things, very specific at times, dealing with the local situations, mostly kings and, and battles and all these different kinds of things that would happen. And uh, so you see that type of work from these prophets. You see them before the period of the kings in the Old Testament, during the period of the kings. You see them write. You see them preach. So this is kind of what they, what they did. And they their work is centered around some of the big events of the day. Again, just for review, we'll focus on only two today. You have a civil war in ancient Israel that comes to a head in uh, the 10th century BC. And you have these nations, or what would be like a, a nation to the north, which was called Israel. And then you had one to the south, which was called Judah. And it, it was effectively a civil war. And this was a very, very big event. You can read about it and why it happened in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12 in the Old Testament. And a couple of hundred years uh, later, there would be a, a, a massive event where the Assyrian Empire would come and take the northern kingdom or take out Israel. And uh, if you've heard of the Samaritans in the, in the New Testament, have you heard of the Good Samaritan or the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well? Well, the Samaritans are descendants of the intermarriage of the Assyrian culture and those uh, Jewish people who were taken 
and who were uh, taken over by the Assyrians. And this is why there's a rift between the people in the north, the Jews in the north, and the Jews in the south that you read about in the New Testament. So this is a big, big thing that culminates in 722, and you can read about it in those references uh, on the screen. You know, you're looking for a good Bible study in the Old Testament, just read those passages, and you'll see, catch up on the sort of current events of the day. And that's where we meet our prophet for today. His name is Hosea. Uh, there's a name that sounds a lot like his name uh, that starts with a J. Some of you have children with this name. Yeah, Hosea, but there's, there's an, uh, a current up-to-date name that we use in the English language that comes from the same word. Starts with a J. Joshua. Joshua is the same really root word in Hebrew as Hosea. It meant uh, God is salvation. God is a savior. Uh, and we'll get to the meaning why that's so significant later on. But uh, Hosea gives us very specific uh, detail as to when he ministered. He's very specific about this. Some of the other prophets are very hard to pin down. But Hosea, we can nail exactly when he ministers from because he tells us so. And he does this in verse 1 and verse, uh, verse 1 of, the, of the, the book. So the word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of, and he names these kings. And we know these kings from the ancient world. We can read about them in the Bible. We can read about them in ancient historical records. Some of them we have some interesting archaeological evidence that we can corroborate with the Scripture. But we know these kings. And we can, we can pin down, therefore, when Hosea is preaching and what he's writing about here in this book because he names these kings. So he says, the reigns of Uzziah. And Uzziah, uh, you see him on the right-hand side of your screen. He's also called Azariah. So he's named there. Jotham is named. He's on the right side of your screen. Ahaz is named. And Hezekiah is named. And these are, uh, we're told in this text, the kings of Judah. Judah being down south, all right? And what I've done for you is I've put on the left-hand side of your screen the kings of Israel at that time. And so you can see all of these kings on one slide here. So we've got Jeroboam named in this text. We've got uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Why is that so important? Well, because if you want to know the message of Hosea, you've got to know what's going on in his world and in his time and in his politics and all of this. You know, we think that in the 21st century, we have really dramatic politics. You know, and we watch politicians and we have all of our views about politics. Goodness, folks, you go back 2,800 years ago in, in the Middle East and you've got some crazy political stuff going on. A lot, a lot more insane than what we see in our modern you know, world today. It was something else. And it gives you a clue as to why he's going to write what he writes. So this is a list of all of them. And this is what happened in Israel, again, to the north, to these kings. And I've given you all these references here. I've done all the work for you. Take your phone. Take a little picture of this slide you will go on an amazing little journey of Bible study in terms of the time that this man 
ministered in. And he was up in the north because he's going to speak about Israel and what is going to happen to Israel. Now, half the names on the left-hand side of your screen, I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, but on the right-hand side of your screen, I've given you all these verses of Scripture, and you see the ones that are in red there? So the, the reason why those are in red is because the king that's, on, that's left of those passages was assassinated. So you've got four assassinated kings there. And you can read about the reigns of each of those kings, and you can see how those ones who were red were assassinated, sometimes successively. So a king would assassinate another king, take power, and then another king would assassinate that king and take power. And you had, you had this happen. This was a common thing that was happening uh, back then. And so the people lived in these kinds of conditions. And when you look at, at you read the books of Kings, you read the books of Chronicles in the Old Testament, and you look at all those kings, specifically of Israel to the north, and every single one of them, without exception, leads the people into ungodliness, leads the people away from God. Every single one to the north does it. So they do some good things, but then at the end, you read kind of the epitaph and the summary of their life, and it says, this king Jeroboam II, this king Zechariah, this king Shalom, this king Menachem, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, one after the other after the other. And in Judah to the south, it wasn't much better. You had a few godly kings there, you had a few examples, but in Israel to the north, Every single one of them ends up darkening their nation and bringing uh, the worship of idols into their nation, uh, uh, diluting their uh, uh, what they were supposed to, how they were supposed to live, and how God commanded them to live, and watering it down, bringing the people into all kinds of crazy stuff and all kinds of moral evil. And some of it was really bad. Some of it is even hard to mention in a context like this. All kinds of crazy sin. And these people were told, the, the, Israel as a nation was told by God through Moses, this is the way that I'm calling you to live. And if you don't live this way, and if you follow the other lands and the other peoples and the other gods, there are going to be consequences for you, Israel. And I am going to mete out those consequences on you, Israel. This is what God says in the first five books of the Bible, in the law of Moses. A lot of it is this is the way you are to live. If you do not live this way, you are going to face consequences. Now, I use that nice politically correct North American term, consequence, but the term that's used in the Old Testament is a lot harsher. It starts with a C also. Do you know what it is? Curse. So again, as, as we've said before in this series, get out of your brain, uh, you know, that curse means uh, some sort of witch with a little, you know, pot and they're putting you know, uh, stuff in it and praying over it or whatever. <laughs> That's not what it means in the, in the scripture. What it means when God so-called curses, it means he is directly meeting out consequence. 
And this is what the people were told. If you live in this way, consequences are coming. And again, that, that harsher word, curse, same thing. So God is going to bring these consequences. You've got to understand that before you read this book, because this book, just like many of the other prophets, is harsh. The language even is harsh. There's parts of it, even in these first three chapters, that I won't read out loud. It's going to make you blush. It's going to make you feel uncomfortable. Read it on your own and you'll see why. I mean, he uses very, very graphic language. And it's completely politically incorrect. This writer is not filtering what he's writing, you know, through our 21st century cleaned up way of communicating. He is raw. He is direct. But it's straight from the heart of God. So you have a mess in his nation. You have kings who are ungodly. You therefore have leadership that's ungodly. You therefore have people living in ungodly ways. And so what do you think is going to happen after these people know? If you live this way, this is what's going to happen. Moses says it first by five books of, of the Bible everywhere. What's going to happen? Well, consequences are coming, and this is what the story is about. And what happens is so bizarre and so unusual uh, that it just grips the reader and draws the reader in to the, the prophet's work. Because this prophet, Hosea, is told directly by God in verse 2 that he is to marry a, a, shall we say, a known promiscuous woman. So the different versions of the Bible use different terms. I've got a nice, pretty NIV here from 1984, you know, and it says, uh, adulterous wife. Go take to yourself an adulterous wife. Uh, other versions of the scripture use a much, use much harsher language. Some use the word prostitute. I mean, it, it's, it depends which version you read. But this, he's told, a prophet of God is told specifically, you are to go and you are to marry this woman. She, she is a, a, a known promiscuous woman. So she is not going to be faithful to you. But I want you to marry her. And he gives Hosea the reason, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. I told you the language was harsh. So he, what this means is that Hosea and the book of Hosea and the story of his marriage is what we call an allegory. So it's, it's connected to the people of Israel and their relationship with God. So the, the marriage of Hosea to Gomer, that's her name. You say that's a weird name. We'll get into that in a second. The marriage of Hosea to Gomer is an allegory of God's relationship with Israel. Okay? And so he says, I want you to marry this person because... This represents, in a sense, Israel and how they have departed from me. Wow. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what this prophet is thinking on his wedding day, you know. 
uh, how are things going to go? Well, they're not probably not going to go good. You know, she's not going to be faithful to her vows. She's not going to, I'm doing this because God has told this to me and I'm being obedient to God. But what man in his right mind would marry a woman? What woman in her right mind would marry a man who she knew would obviously be unfaithful? I mean, nobody goes into their marriage wishing that, wanting that, knowing that. But here's the prophet of God, not just a you know, regular, ordinary sort of lay person, but this prophet of God, this spokesperson of God is told to do this. Wow. So the two of them marry, and she, he marries uh, uh, Gomer is her name, and uh, she bears him a son. Now, her name, Gomer, means uh, complete or completion or filling up, and scholars have wrestled with why it means that. It doesn't say, uh, the text doesn't say why she's named that, but that's what her name means. And we're told that she gives him three children. And it's very specific, the names of these children. So the first child is uh, a son. And we're told in verse 4, the Lord says to Hosea, okay, you're going to call this son Jezreel in verses 4 and 5. Again, there's a reason, this is an allegory, because I will soon punish the house of Yehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Jehu was a, was a king of Israel before the time of Hosea, and that, that king, uh, you read about it in uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, he went on something of, um, it's hard to use any other term to describe it, something of a military bloodbath. And you read about it in 2 Kings chapter 9, and here God is saying, I'm going to avenge the injustice of what that king did. And where that king did it is a place called Jezreel. And so I want you to call your son Jezreel, because I'm going to punish the house of Yehu for this. And I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Say, wow, such harsh consequence. Why? Well, again, because these folks had run the red light for a long, long time. Warning after warning after warning after warning. They can't plead ignorance. They can't plead that they didn't know. And now the consequences are going to come. So uh, this is the firstborn uh, son. And in that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Judgment uh, to come. Then we see that Gomer conceives again, and she gives birth to a daughter this time. And God says to Hosea, this is the name of the daughter. You're going to call her lo Ruhama, and that, that this means not loved. Imagine calling your child that, not loved. But again, this is, a, this is meant to be an allegory extending to Israel. So the names of these children are very specifically chosen. And they're real people, they're real children, there's real husband and wife, but the, this God is going to use this, this family, if you will, as an example. So you're going to call this second child Lo Ruhama, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Say, whoa, I do not like these, this language, this picture of God is harsh. 
Indeed it is. But understand the context. Israel had run the red lights for decades and decades under these ungodly leaders, willfully saying, God, we're, we're, we know what you're saying, but we're doing it another way. And so here, again, the consequences we see are going to come just by reading the names um, of these children. And then in verses um, uh, 8 to 10, or I'll read from verse 7, Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them. That's in the south. Not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but by the Lord their God. So judgment coming to Israel, but not to Judah at the same time. Uh, centuries later, Judah would be judged. Uh, the Babylonians would come and take them, 6th century B.C. But here, 8th century B.C., Israel is going to be judged. You say, wow, God is so harsh. God is so mean. <laughs> Remember, folks, and big lesson for us. You, these people could not plead ignorance. They could not say, well, God, you're being, you're being unjust to us. They could not do that because they had the law of Moses. They were told, you are called to live this way. If you do not live this way, these consequences are going to come. And honestly, a lot of the prophet's work is to warn the people, get back in line with the law of Moses. Get back in line with the commands of God. Because if you get out of line with them, and if you stray from them, consequences are coming. Okay? You say, well, does that mean that that's what's going to happen to me? Folks, put it, again, keep it in its context. Context is, these people were told, you live this way, consequences are coming. You choose to run that red light, you're going to face the consequences. So, in our lives today, the application would be similar, although we're not under the law of Moses. If God says you live this way, and you live this way, you're going you're gonna to experience blessing. You live the opposite way, you're going to experience destruction. Same principle is, is true, but the way we apply it is different. Do you see what I'm saying? So before we get off on a tangent and say, well, God is so mean and God is so harsh in the Old Testament, just remember, these people had no excuse. They were warned, really, for centuries, and yet chose to uh, astray and chose to rebel against God who had called them to be differently. And then you see the third child is named Lo-Ami. So verses 8 to 10, after she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. And then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Now watch this in verse 10. Yet... The Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. There is a hope of redemption here even in this judgment that is coming. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So there seems to be a hope here 
that there's redemption coming and even unity will come between the northern and the southern kingdoms and they will be led by someone, we're not sure who, many people say this is a prediction of the coming Messiah. In, in their time, they would have under, understood it that way. So you, you, you catch, the, catch the story. You say, man, this is one strange, strange story. And, but you continue to read here and, and unpack this. And what you really see is a, is a beautiful picture. It is one of the most magnificent pictures of the character of God in both justice and mercy, uh, grace and truth, love and forgiveness and redemption. All of these themes are nested in this book. And it's obvious to the reader that Homer's, uh, Gomer's marriage to Hosea and these children, this is a picture of Israel. God is going to bring judgment on them, but God is going to forgive and God is going to redeem. And you'll see in a moment how this connects even to us. You move to chapter 2 and you see that there's this, this uh, very clear picture that Israel is going to be punished. And uh, uh, Gomer is likened to Israel. Again, the, the language is extremely graphic and extremely harsh where this uh, adulterous wife is, is the picture of Israel. So it, it's implied, obviously, that she is right away unfaithful to her husband. She's wayward. She's promiscuous. She is a so-called adulteress, just as Israel has been. And God says, I will, I will, I will, like 20 times in Hosea chapter 2. You can count it. And the language is very harsh. You know, I will expose, I will ruin, I will take back, I will take away all kinds. I will wall her in uh, all kinds of harsh uh, language to describe judgment that is going to come on the nation. And, but the problem is that you, you can't stop reading there. Right? You have to read the whole, the whole picture of what is going to happen to, to catch the impact. But it's clear that trouble is going to come. Now, when you read the rest of the book after chapter 3, and you read from chapters 4 to 13, you see clearly that the trouble that is coming that Hosea sees is the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are going to come and they are going to take over and take out uh, Israel. And this is what he sees and it will happen, you know, three, four decades after he's finished his work. That's what comes to, to pass. The very violent Assyrian army uh, would come in and they would destroy uh, Israel. In fact, Israel would never be the same again ever uh, after that that moment, there would be this redemption, but it would never, ever retain uh, and go back to what it was before. Uh, but you do see in chapter 2, uh, this even in this um, uh, judgment that is foreseen, again, you see this picture of hope. And it's best displayed here in verse 23, the back end of Hosea chapter 2. And this is what he says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, 
you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So to Israel, yes, there is this judgment that's going to come. But to Israel, there is forgiveness also. There is redemption also. There is reconciliation also that will come. So this is the message that's for them. But you watch this marriage, and the writer kind of jumps back to the marriage in chapter 3. And we see some amazing um, uh, pictures really that relate even to us and even to Jesus and what Jesus does in our lives. So chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, go and show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, even though they turn to other gods. And so we see next that Hosea goes out and he buys back his own wife from what looks like some sort of marketplace, some sort of version of even human trafficking back in that day. She has fallen into dire, dire straits. And even in that culture, uh, you know, when a, when a, uh, when there was a wedding and a marriage, like there wasn't equality like there is today, okay? That husband had legal right and authority over his wife. It was a very, very harsh, very man-dominated setup and culture there. And yet she has strayed so far that he actually has to legally buy her back from this sort of slave market where scholars have wrestled with this. How did she get there? What is she doing there? Why does he even have to buy her back? Technically, under their system back then, he would, in a sense, own her. And yet he has to buy his own wife back, even the price that's explained here. So I bought her for 15 shekels. Uh, the price of a slave in that day, most scholars would say it's 30 so, I mean, it, it, like she is, she's not even being sold at the price of a, of a slave. She's being undersold. Like this woman has fallen into terrible, terrible places and dire straits. And here he is put in a position where he's got to go and buy back his own wife from some type of slavery or something. Could be some version of what we would call human trafficking today. And so he buys her back and says, you are to live with me. Some translations wait for me many days. You must not be unfaithful with any man and live and I will live with you or in some I will wait for you. So almost as if to say we will come together, but not yet. Why? We're not even sure, but. Some translations read it that way. But the point is that he goes and he buys her back. And the language that we use for that type of transaction is redeem. He purchases back, he redeems his own wife. For the Israelites will live 
many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, without sacred stones, and afterward the Israelites will return. It's God speaking. No, it's not. It's the radio. Yeah, unspin the dial. Thank you, Omar. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince. And afterward, the Israelites will return. And they will seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So you say, well, you know, interesting story, really strange, really complex, but how, you haven't persuaded me, how does it relate to me? Well, we are like Gomer or Israel. And it, it, because we do, even, even though we, we don't like to admit it, we do similar things. We know, you know, especially folks who grow up in church and folks who, you know, been exposed to the Bible and all that, and we, we have this understanding of what God expects, and even people who aren't Christians have, a, have a, at times, even a very strong sense of conscience. I mean, I've even seen non-Christians with a stronger sense of conscience than Christians, just saying. And we have this, we have this inside of us we have this moral compass inside of us, and yet, what do we do? Often, like little children, you know, the line is here, don't cross it. And what will we do? We will step across that line. You cross that line, you, we say to our children, you walk across that line, you, you put your finger in that plug, you touch that hot stove, you go and you go out and you do the, you live this way, you go and you, you know, get into drugs and all this kind of destructive living and problems are going to come your way. Pain is going to come your way. Destruction is going to come your way. You know, we get older and it's, well, you know, you go and you, and you break that relationship. You go and you be unfaithful, even like, even like Gomer was, and consequences are going to come. You steal that money. You cheat on that exam. You, do the, you cut this corner in your moral life, and consequences are going to come. Consequences are going to come. And what do we do? We say, let's see. Let's see if they'll come. And oftentimes, we think to ourselves, we rationalize to ourselves, the consequences aren't going to be so bad. No one's going to get hurt. After all, I work so hard for this company, I'll steal a little bit of money here and there. They owe it to me anyway. No one's going to get hurt. No one's going to know. Yes, I, I saw the woman, or yes, I saw the man, but no one's going to know. No one's going to find out. It was just one night. It was just one moment. It was just one this, one that, one moral red light run after the other. And look, I'm getting away with it. I'm not getting caught. I'm getting away with it. Catch me consequences if you can. And what happens? Those consequences, they come crashing at times into our lives, like we talked about Joel, like those locusts. And they come and they devour our lives and they steal our joy. Paul says to the Roman church, New Testament, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't care if you go to church or you don't go to church. You call yourself a Christ follower, you call yourself an atheist. 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all got the sin problem. All of us are infected by it. All of us are, in a sense, just like Gomer and just like ancient Israel. All of us. And Paul sums it up in that passage, Romans 3.23. And there's these consequences that come. You want to use the word curse like the Old Testament? Use it if you want. But there are these consequences that come. You reap what you sow. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes you can get away with it for a while, for a long time. And you found a way. You found a way to lie to everybody. You found a way to, you've got, you've got one life at home. You've got one life outside of home. You've got everything compartmentalized. Folks, I've seen it even in churches where you've got people living like completely, completely differently outside of their whole kind of church community setup. Uh, completely differently than they live inside the whole relationships with the church folks. And they know how to switch between one and the other, and they've got it all. And, and they think, it's, I'm nev- no one's ever going to, no, uh, no one's getting hurt here. And in the end, those consequences come and they ravage. They ravage the person's life. And at times, they ravage other people's lives too family, friends, sometimes whole church communities are affected with the consequences of these moral red lights that we run. Paul says, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, he says. Strong wages, strong consequences. What is he saying? He's saying, Humanity has a problem, and that problem leads ultimately to humanity's death. Wow, that is strong language, but it's true. These are the consequences of sin. Ultimately, your life is lost. And even in a physical sense, folks, like all of us, it's slow and sure, but even the physical death process that's at work in really all of us in one shape or another, one form of another, everybody in this room, all of us are going to face that grave. Why do we face it? We face it ultimately because sin has infected and is a part of humanity, and no one is exempt from its consequences. Nobody. All have sinned. These are the wages of sin. Say, that's, a, that's bad news. Like, I don't want to hear that news. What kind of church is this? What kind of message is this? What kind of Bible are you reading from? Where's the nice, good, gentle, loving Jesus? Like, what is this? This is really, really harsh. Well, if you're going to know the good news of Jesus, you've got to know the bad news first. The bad news makes the good news good. And none of us, folks... We don't have an excuse. Ancient Israel didn't either. We don't either, folks. We've got that inbred moral compass. If you've got the scripture, great. If you're an atheist, you've still got that compass. You've got no excuse. God has shown, has revealed himself to you in one way or the other. Uh, uh, Paul would argue in Romans, look at, look at the creation, observe the creation. 
and you, it implies a creator. He says, all men are without excuse to the Romans. In the New Testament, he says this. Wages of sin is death, but he continues, the gift of God is Christ Jesus our Lord and what he has done for us on the cross. So Hosea or Joshua, Jesus is just a Greek form of the name Joshua. So Jesus' name is the same as Joshua's name means the Lord is salvation, the Lord saves. What does he do, Jesus? He seeks, just like uh, uh, Hosea, he redeems his bride, the, the people of God, the, the, the humanity in a sense is the bride here. He redeems us in spite of our background. Religious, irreligious. And so what does Paul do? Uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 25, he actually reads from uh, Hosea. And he, he plays with the application a little bit, but this is what he says. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. It will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And there he argues that it's non-Jewish people, i.e. what he says, Gentiles is the word, people with no Jewish background, people with a Jewish background, doesn't matter because God wants everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the story of Hosea, of Joshua, of Jesus, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the gospel story in this marriage, this bizarre marriage with this prophet and this promiscuous woman and what ensues. So it, for us today, what I want to make sure of, what I want you to be challenged with, the musicians, you can come to the, to the front if you are in the room and you want to start playing, you can come. Uh, what I want to challenge us with today, have you responded to Jesus? Have you responded to him reaching for you out in the public marketplace where you're a slave to sin, where you've got yourself in dire straits, just like Gomer, out in the probably the slave market somewhere? Are you there? Have you, have you seen the truth of, yes, I've seen what my sin has done to my life. I'm right out there with Gomer. I'm right out there with ancient Israel. And folks, it doesn't matter if you sit in a church meeting every week. You can still be as lost as lost can be. Even though you're going through all the motions and you've got everybody fooled, you can be as lost as lost can be. Do you know Hosea today? Do you know Jesus today? He's reaching for you out in that marketplace that wants to redeem you and have fellowship with you that you would experience eternal life today. So I'm going to 
pray a simple prayer on your behalf. I'd like to, you to have a moment of privacy with me if you want to close your eyes. And maybe there's those of you who are in this room or there are those of you you're watching online and you say, man, I relate to this Gomer lady. I am out there and nobody knows it, but God knows it today. And God is speaking to me today through this story. Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me for my sin. You pray that prayer along with me if this resonates with you in your heart today. Forgive me for my sin. Redeem my life from destruction that I would have a relationship with God today and that you would reach into my life and save it and put me back to a place with you today. Amen. You prayed that prayer and you prayed it with conviction today. I'm telling you, God is speaking to you today and he, he's calling you his child. You reached out to him with conviction. He's calling you his child today. That's the beginning of a walk with God. Come and see me after. Tell me about it. Tell me your story. If you prayed that prayer, I would love to help you along the way. God bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids over in screen 11. And we will meet in about, uh, about an hour or so, probably 1 o'clock, over at Parc de la Cité at the Davis uh, Street parking lot. We'll be right off there, okay? If you want to volunteer in our back-to-school bash or give, you can visit the desk outside. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday today. Sweet.
Good afternoon, everyone.